It's a new Tuesday in December. That means it's time for a Killin' Missing Hidden Classic just for you. Oh, I'm so wonderful. Okay, so this one is an interesting little tale that just everybody needs to hear, which is why I selected it for our special December programming. This is about the self-described meanest man that ever lived. This is a man who, if it was up to him, he would choke the life out of every single human being on the planet. And yet, this is about a man who is a philosopher at heart, if not trained as such, who is very introspective and was curious about why he hated people so much and why he was so evil. So he makes for a very interesting study. I'm talking, of course, about the infamous Carl Panzram. Some of y'all have heard this story before, particularly if you've listened to all of my podcast episodes, you'd have to hear that before. But this is a serial killer of some distinction who is just very, very interesting. So I give you his story this week as a way to pass the time before 2022 finally comes to an end. Enjoy. Charles Carl Panzeram was born on June 18, 1891 in East Grand Forks, Minnesota, to immigrant parents from Prussia. Carl's father was a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War and had moved to America in hopes of striking it rich, or at least enough to be well off through agricultural pursuits. Unfortunately, when he got to America, he found out that a lot of the best land had already been sold off to folks. A plot of land he bought could really best be described as crap. It was a dirt farm. If he was raising worms, he'd be in business, but I don't think that was the family's goal. Now, Carl was the sixth and last child of the Pazram family, and frankly, he was an unwelcome addition. His mother was in her 40s when Carl was born, she was also well into her uh, menopause. This caused her to often neglect Carl and his whales as she rested, sometimes for hours at a time. Now, as he grew older, Carl probably would have welcomed being ignored by his father because he seemed to be this mixture of stern religious beliefs, violence as a form of discipline, and mixed in with a dash of alcoholism. Basically, anything that displeased Papa was met with a savage beating. When Carl was only eight, his dad tapped out. Seeing that they were working themselves to death on land that just wasn't producing nothing, he abandoned his family for better prospects further north. Once the overbearing father was out of the picture, the three oldest boys also dashed for freedom, leaving only Carl, his mother, his sister, and one brother to try to work the land. So essentially twice the workload for the same predictable results. It was around this time, and again, Carl was only eight, that he had his first brush with the law. His first criminal charge, drunk and disorderly conduct. Again, at the age of eight. 
Now, rather than jailing him, the officer who made the arrest took Carl back to his home, where his mom just beat the mess out of him as best she could. And, you know, Carl didn't really learn anything from this event except, you know, try not to get caught. At the age of nine, Carl suffered from a pretty severe ear infection. Now, without any income, there was nothing Carl's mom could do. She couldn't take him to a doctor. They just couldn't afford it. But the infection continued to get worse and worse, and eventually he was complaining not only about his ear hurting, but the back of his head being in pain. Without a better option, Carl's mother made the strange decision to try to see if she wasn't a surgeon in disguise. Yeah, she uh, seriously gave us a shot at brain surgery, cut Carl open without any of the proper tools, any sterilization, you know, anything to make Carl feel better. And she kind of dug around for anything that looked odd. Not that she would know what looked odd and what looked normal. But this uh, operation, if we can call it that, really only made Carl's condition worse. And at this point, truly having no other option, Carl was taken to a local hospital for a real surgery. Apparently, the infection had spread to the mastoid bone in the middle ear, which, as the internet tells me, is super bad. Because once an infection reaches the mastoid bone, the infection kind of has hit the superhighway to travel throughout your head however it wants. And it can cause a whole mess of bigger problems, including things like, you know, brain damage. So this event is debated by historians as to whether Carl's lifelong shenanigans were due to brain damage from this infection. As apparently, it's pretty common for an infection to reach the hypothalamus in this scenario. And the hypothalamus is the part of the brain that controls sexual arousal, aggression, the ability to trust, sleep cycle, and impacts most of your emotions. And people, you know, those that study this stuff have learned that over the years, it's pretty common to find damage to the hypothalamus in serial killers. So we have this academic debate going on as to, you know, was Carl born bad? Was he raised bad? Or did this infection make him bad? Regardless, we're not here for that. Carl continued acting out. It kind of culminated with the thieving spree at the age of 11, where he hit several neighbors' houses and ended up taking apples and cakes and other foodstuffs. Kind of what you would expect a hungry, hungry child to be interested in. He also managed to get his hands on a pistol. Doesn't really fit in with the rest of his thieving, but the gun made him feel just great. And he decided his real purpose in life was to be a cowboy. So that very night, he made his way to the local railroad yard and tried to stow away on a train. Unfortunately for him, he got caught and was taken home. But his mama refused to take him in. She said, that was enough. I'm tired of fooling with him. So having no other option available, the cops took him to a local reform school, the Minnesota State Training School, housed around 300 boys from ages 7 to 21. That's quite a spread right there now. Can you, I mean, I always thought high school in uh, the United States had a pretty big age range, you know, 14 to 18, roughly. Now imagine having a 10-year-old locked in the same room with a 20-year-old. 
Carl would later claim that the school taught him only about, quote, man's inhumanity to man. For example, Carl was once beaten for folding a napkin the wrong way. All the beatings took place in a shed known as the paint shop, as the boy called it that because when you went in, you came out covered in black and blue. One of the more creative punishments employed was to strip down a boy naked, tie him face down on a piece of wood, then drape a towel over his back, and that towel would have been just soaked in salt water for a spell. And then you'd just beat the heck out of the boy where the towel was. And the thinking behind this was, you still get to beat him, but you're causing about triple amount of pain because the salt seeping into all those wounds you're creating. But it also, you know, won't increase the noticeable damage and there's no increased likelihood of infection or anything, supposedly. Now, right before Carl was released from the reform school, his brother at home, the one who stayed, died in a kind of a freak drowning accident. Carl was allowed to leave to go be with his family. And when he got home, his mother begged him to stay to help work the land. But uh, this didn't really jive with Carl's view of the world. He was still kind of bitter about her refusing to take him in and forcing him to stay in that horrible school. And so uh, he had to come up with a way to get out of staying there. Because remember, he's on, at this point, he's only 12. He didn't really have the freedom just to walk away like an adult would. So he decided... After a couple of days, while they were at dinner, he announced that he wanted to become a priest. His mother was actually kind of excited about this, so she took it upon herself to make arrangements for him to study at the Emmanuel Lutheran Church that was nearby. Now, life in that church was roughly approximate to life at the Reform School. Carl fought with the other students a lot. The pastor in charge of the school had little patience for Carl's nonsense and really took it upon himself to regularly whip the boy. The whippings soon turned into these just rage-filled beatings. And Carl knew the difference. He had kind of become a connoisseur of punishments by this stage in life. As he endured the rage of the pastor, the rage in his own heart just continued to multiply. Now, while he's sitting there in this church, supposedly... Um, you know, we get to experience an event where that just shows how funny life can be, right? It, it can deal out odd coincidences. And it did this to Carl while he's studying at the church. See, the youngest of his free, three brothers that had run away actually happened to become a police officer and actually happened to become a police officer that was just a couple towns away from this church. Carl caught wind of this and decided he needed to go visit his brother. Only, he didn't really want to catch up with his brother. He just wanted to steal his policeman's weapon, you know, get his hand on a gun. Well, he managed to, and he brought it back to the church with him. That next day, the pastor again was outraged at Carl for something stupid, I'm sure, and demanded that Carl come to the front of the class to receive his punishment. Carl said, nope. So the pastor came to Carl and just began beating him around the head with a stick. Uh, if you've seen Blues Brothers, think of that scene when they're in the nun's office. And if you haven't seen that movie, you're probably not living life right. 
Go go watch it. But Carl just sat there and took this beating. He didn't react to it. And this just enraged the pastor, of course. So he tried to pull Carl out of his seat. All he really managed to do was rip Carl's vest, which caused the pastor to fall down on his behind. And that gun Carl now possessed to stumble out onto the floor. Carl and the pastor both scrambled for it, but Carl ended up winning that race and aimed the weapon directly at the pastor. Now, at this point, for some reason, the pastor became scared of Carl, which Carl, of course, loved. And uh, he just aimed his sights down at the pastor and pulled the trigger. And then the gun kind of jammed. So he pulled the trigger several more times, but the gun would never fire. Disgusted with that weapon's failure, Carl just got up and left class. Later that night, when he was in bed, Carl would be, uh, let's say, escorted to the pastor's office where the pastor (laughs) proceeded to choke Carl until he told him where the gun was. Carl eventually gave in, and that was the extent of Carl's punishment for that incident. At this point, Carl just gave up on the church and life and snuck out and hopped aboard a railroad card. Um, he was successful this time. You know, his experience had ruined his respect for religion, and he was reported to have said later on in life that he wished he had been the one to kill Jesus. So, not 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 a real rosy attitude towards Christianity. As he's riding the rails, he begged or stole food as he needed. He was heading out west, obviously. He kind of lived the hobo life, as he called it. Uh, There was a downside, though, of living this hobo life, at least for a 14-year-old boy. Um, Lots and lots of sodomy. Seriously. (laughs) He was prey for gangs of hobos, and you never really had anyone who could save him from this torture. Sometimes it would be, you know, a violent event, and other times, you know, a group would invite him over to share some food and alcohol with him until he passed out, and then they'd take advantage of him. And this would just put a new shine on his hatred for humanity. He kind of thought the other hobos should be like brothers in arms, considering they were all in the same boat. Not this new set of predators he had to contend with. It was at this point Carl claimed to decide he could never trust another man again. And so he had to get tougher and meaner. He had to be as savage as these men. He had to be willing to steal someone's sexual innocence, just like they had done to him. And his actions in life indicated that Carl really took this to heart. For example, it was after these experiences, he no longer stole what he needed. He stole what he wanted. He liked picking on folks who were smaller and weaker than him. Carl himself wrote, quote, Force and might make right. Perhaps things shouldn't be that way, but that's the way they are. I learned to look with suspicion and hatred on everybody. As the years went on, the idea persisted in my mind above all others. I figured that if I was strong enough and clever enough to impose my will on others, I was right. Now, naturally, this philosophy didn't get him real far in life. When the railroad took him to Butte, Montana, he managed to get himself arrested for burglary. He was sent to a massively overcrowded prison. 
where he resided for almost a month. But due to his age, he was eventually sent to a reform school to finish his sentence. Uh-oh. Carl, by this time, was much bigger and stronger than he was during his first stay in a reformatory. Again, he's only 14, but he weighs around 180 pounds, most of it muscle. And he learned that the guards couldn't beat him or push him around too easily. So a lot of them focused on just making sure Carl couldn't escape. Except for one guard. There's always got to be that one dude, huh? This fellow was known as Bushart, and he was a former boxer, so he knew he could handle Carl. Well, living by his new life philosophy, Carl just wasn't going to take this sitting down. His new life philosophy, by the way, was not, you know, live, laugh, love, or whatever those stupid signs say. It was arguably the exact opposite of that. Um, Carl decided he just needed to get rid of Bushart for good. So one night, he snuck out of his room dug around and found a two-by-four, and began slowly hunting for Bushart. He found him in a situation he expected. Bushart was punishing another child. Carl kind of took a moment, slowly opened the door, and then dashed in and just smacked Bushart over the head as hard as he could with that two-by-four. It was so hard that the freaking piece of wood broke. But the plan didn't work. Carl wasn't certain what happened immediately afterwards, but when he came to, he was locked in solitary confinement and just covered in bruises and scratches and bloody welts. Since he couldn't be sent to the adult prison, the guards kind of discussed the situation amongst themselves and said, well, if we got to keep him, we're going to make his life here as awful as possible. Carl got punished for everything. As one of the worst examples I could find, when he was caught pleasuring himself one night in his room, he was forcibly removed from bed, taken immediately to the doctor's office, and had uh, his foreskin surgically removed. You know... Uh, Somewhat shockingly, Carl actually made a friend in the midst of all this. A kid by the name of Jimmy Benson, who was about as mean as Carl was. So the two naturally bonded, became BFFs, and planned an escape. The idea was Benson would leave first. He was smaller and quicker, so he could, you know, it would be an easier job for him to sneak out under the cover of darkness. Then once the alarm went up that Benson was gone, Carl would make his move. And they had a meeting spot planned out a ways out from town. The plan worked. Went off without a hitch. Carl got out and was now a free teenager, but with nothing other than the clothes on his back. Well, I guess the rage in his heart, too. And that, uh, that iron bar he had stolen to use as a weapon on his way out of the prison. Benson uh, was a little more resourceful. And when he met up with Carl after a few days... He had with him a bag of food, new clothing, and a gun. So the pair traveled together for a spell. Carl taught Benson the best way to commit arson. Benson caught, taught Carl the best way to rob people with a gun. They supported themselves by stealing from trains or church donation boxes. 
After a month, they had arrived in North Dakota. They were wearing new suits, carrying new pistols, and had pockets full of spending money. They decided this was the best spot to part ways. Benson was going to head back to Montana. And when he did, he immediately got tossed in state prison. Carl, however, decided to leave his fate in the hands of destiny and train schedules. So now we're going to fast forward a bit to Carl at age 16. He'd been riding the rails and has circled back into Montana somehow. At this point, it's winter. He's tired. He's hungry. And he says, you know, let me just take a breather here. He was in Helena. Let's let's take a little quiz. Let's see how good your guessing skills are. What's Carl's next move, okay? Is it A, settle down in an abandoned house and steal the food and other supplies he needed under the cover of darkness? Is it B, continue his brash, robbing ways, ending up in the state prison? Or is it C, join the army? If you guess C, you're correct and probably have some witchery skills. I mean, what an odd, odd decision for Carl. I mean, at this point, from everything we know about him, do you honestly believe that military life suits Carl in any way, shape, or form? Regardless, he lied about his age to the recruiters, and the recruiters being so desperate for fresh meat, they didn't look too hard to try to figure out his real age. And our boy Carl became a United States soldier in the winter of 1906 which would prove to be a horrible decision for both parties. All right, now, honestly, I don't know how true the soldier part is. Like, whether Carl actually became what would we would respectably call a soldier, because, you know, like, after getting his hair cut and his new uniform, the very first duty he was assigned was to clean the outhouses, and he refused. Now, being new to the gang... A young first lieutenant pulled Carl aside, kind of read him the riot act, and tossed him a copy of the Articles of War. It's essentially kind of the rule book on how military men were expected to act and behave. Carl weren't real impressed, so he just ripped up the book in front of the lieutenant. And uh, as you might imagine, that didn't go over too well. He found himself locked up for a week for this disrespectful action. But the week turned into longer than that because he just couldn't stop getting in trouble, mainly in the form of fighting. He fought recruits that were in there. He fought soldiers that were in there. He fought guards that were there. So eventually he ended up in solitary confinement, receiving only bread and water. By April, he was done with the army and its nonstop rules, so he made a break for it, but he was quickly caught. Carl tries to escape from a lot of situations, and Carl was not blessed with the ability to escape from most situations. And, you know, the army kind of frowns upon desertion, so he ended up being court-martialed and sentenced to three years at Fort Leavenworth, the military prison located in Kansas. Now, remember, Carl lied about his age, but he's being sent to an adult prison with adult men without any of the adult life experiences. Despite being a veteran when it comes to the world of punishment, Leavenworth still held many surprises for the young Carl. 
the prison was in such bad shape at this point in time, the commandant claimed to his superiors that basically this was nothing but a fire risk. They were sitting on a bag of kindling and he needed help. But, you know, no one listened. Who cares about prisons? So just living there was dangerous. Even before you took into account the fact that there's, you know, other prisoners there, other bad dudes. The rules at Leavenworth were pretty strict. Some of the notable ones were inmates were not allowed to talk, like, ever. And they were fed something that barely qualified as food. From the descriptions I read, oftentimes when it was served to them, it, the food was either covered in mold or came with a nice, nice healthy little clump of insects living inside of it. The most troublesome prisoners were demoted to the third grade, is what they called them. They had to wear different uniforms and were subjected to the most cruel punishments. For example, disobedient inmates of the third grade could be put in a straitjacket. Okay, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Well, they would get the two burliest guards they could find to help tie it up, and they'd tie that straitjacket so tight that most of the time the inmates couldn't breathe and would pass out from it. If one member of the third grade committed an infraction, everybody got punished. Those who tried to escape and got caught had a 50-pound iron ball attached to their leg, just like in the cartoons. They, they called this carrying the baby. Now, so why would we be focusing on third grade prisoners? I don't know why I'm even asking that question because we all know the answer. That Carl immediately falls into the third grade when he gets there. He was so troublesome that he earned the right to carry a baby and had to march with his fellow inmates three miles to perform their work every day while carrying his baby and carrying all the tools for the third grades in a wheelbarrow. He marched three miles carrying a 50-pound ball and then a wheelbarrow full of tools. And he did this for six months. Now, it had its intended effect. Carl was exhausted every day, so he really didn't cause a lot of trouble during this period of time. But it also made him pretty strong and pretty tough. Like, the dude was proper hard. By the time he finished his sentence at the age of 20, he looked like a professional wrestler. And, and I mean like the professional wrestlers from the steroid side of the ring, not the nacho cheese side of the ring. Yet, Carl was going to Carl. You know, his experiences in Leavenworth didn't really slow him down. He constantly, despite being exhausted all the time, he still tried to escape whenever he could. He was always being disrespectful and all that crap. Now he did have only he did have one major victory, only one, but it was a it was a good one in his mind. Remember how we talked about that this place was just begging for a fire to take out everyone inside. Well, Carl tried to do that. Um, he was awfully fond of arson, and uh, he managed to burn down several of the prison shops. He 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 estimated that he caused about a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage, and he felt like that was a pretty pretty fair payback for what he had endured. So anyway, he eventually leaves Fort Leavenworth. 
And, you know, it's another situation. He's set free in the world with nothing but the clothes on his back, $5 in his pocket, and the goal to raise hell just wherever he could. So he kind of bounced around a lot after this. He kind of got sick of living without a purpose, without being focused, I guess you'd say. And he thought that he'd try his hand down in Mexico. He thought that would be a better environment for him to sow his wild, fiery, rage fillets, you know? By the time he got down to Texas, he had hooked up with this kid, a young boy, who was just as criminal to the core as Carl. And they worked together to steal and con people as best they could. Usually the boy was the face and Carl was the muscle. The boy would help kind of throw off potential victims, you know, thinking that they weren't really going to be victimized because this little kid couldn't hurt them. But, uh, you know, Carl did his dirty work and folks were roughed up and eventually they were caught while they were in Texas. Got sent to a prison camp in Rusk, Texas. This prison camp was a rough place. The warden, bit of a sicko. Um, Everybody lived in tents, but the warden insisted that the little boy stayed in his own tent with the warden. Well, this, this didn't last long before the warden was fired. Now, Carl and the boy had been sentenced to 40 days at the camp, but they weren't released when their time was up. Carl got upset about this. And tried to escape, but he was caught and introduced to a new form of punishment, one he hadn't tried before, called the snorting pole. So the snorting pole basically was this 12-foot pole that had a hole at the top where a chain was run through. So a prisoner would be handcuffed to that chain, the guards would pull the prisoner up by the chain to where basically only his toes were touching the ground. And then they would just beat the mess out of him or whoop him or whatever they felt was appropriate. So that was Carl's punishment for attempting to escape, which caused Carl just to turn around and try to escape again. Which took him back to the sorting pole, which made Carl try to escape again, which sent him back to the sorting pole. Fourth time's the charm, though. Carl gets out of there, leaving his little boyfriend behind. And finally makes it to Juarez, Mexico, opening up a brand new chapter in Carl's life. All right, let's do another quiz. Carl gets to Mexico. What do you think is the first action he took? Was it A, burn down a local whorehouse and steal all the valuables he could in the commotion? B, join the Mexican army? Or C, assassinate a local mayor and get arrested for the murder? Well, if you guess B, shockingly, you're correct again. Even though he hated army life, Carl decided to join the Mexican army. Now, in fairness to Carl, he wanted to join up because the Mexican Revolution was going on and he figured he would be just let loose and allowed to kill, kill, kill. But when he got to the recruiting station, he was told no gringos. Only Mexicans' finest would be allowed into the ranks. No white boys allowed. Carl was feeling a little dejected, you know, a little little discriminated against, a little bit like an outcast. So uh, he decided to head back up north, back into Texas. 
When he got there, he made friends with another former inmate who he simply referred to as the Indian. They robbed a railroad worker in El Paso as their first act together. Robbed him, tied him up, and then tossed him in some bushes just to kind of let nature take its course with him. Either he was going to be found or he wouldn't. But uh, Carl said, you know, let, let's engage in some some light sodomy here. And the Indian basically said, all right, well, you're kind of crazy. I ain't doing that. Carl insisted upon it, and the Indian fella just left. So uh, Carl did what he did and left the poor worker there badly injured, still tied up, and lying on his belly in the Texas heat waiting for an animal or some other horrible thing to find them. Now, for what it's worth, Carl claimed he didn't engage in sodomy because of his sexual preferences. He did it as a way of basically completely dominating another human being to totally degrade and break them down, to show them that he was far more powerful than they were. Uh, after the Indian parted ways with Carl, Carl said, I'm going to try this again. He goes back into Mexico, goes back to a recruiting center and tries to enlist in the Mexican army. And this recruiting station actually accepted him. And he was given a rifle and told to help guard this town. Well, this town had no strategic importance. It's basically where they just threw folks that they didn't really want in just to keep him busy. Carl figured that out pretty quick. And again, with no one to shoot, nothing to steal, Carl just deserted his post. This time, uh, never got the name of the town he was sent to, but apparently was not close to the U.S. border, so he had quite a hike on his hands. He spent several weeks uh, walking back to the United States, and he grew bored, so to entertain himself, he would do things like, you know, set buildings on fire, shooting random windows, just kid stuff, you know, for funsies. When he got to the U.S., he walked across the border into California. He managed to get arrested for a short spell before hopping back on the trains. First train he got on, he was caught by the brake man. But he managed to convince this dude that he was this Christian missionary who had gone to Mexico, had everything stolen, and now he was just trying to get back home. So out of pity, the brakesman, you know, gives him some food and even says, you know, here, take my watch. You can pawn this to get some money to help you on your journey home. Now, Carl repaid his kindness by sneaking up on him later that night, bashing him over the head tying him up, and sodomizing him. The next few months of Carl's travels were kind of a blur of alcohol, blood, and sodomy. A very, very deviant version of fear and loathing in Las Vegas, I guess you could say. Now, Carl was an equal opportunity rapist, but only towards men. Tall, short, skinny, fat, white, black, Hispanic, whatever. He didn't care. He just wanted to feel like he was dominating a man. His little run of fun ended back in Montana when Carl was sent to jail for two years where he just happened to be housed in the same prison with his old buddy Jimmy Benson from the Reform School 
Though it doesn't seem like for me in the information I could find that they really kind of ganged back up or reminisced about old times. Because Carl spent a lot of his free time just bullying and raping every inmate he could get his hands on. Apparently Carl's time in that particular prison wasn't very noteworthy. And he was soon released and he decided he was going to head for the coast this time. He thought, you know, I'll go to the coast, I'll get my seaman certification, and instead of riding the trains, I'll ride the boats from now on. So he arrives in Oregon, tries to get the certification, but found out it was a heck of a lot more expensive than he dreamed of, and he didn't have the money for it. So he did what you would expect. He broke into the wealthiest looking house in the neighborhood, stole a silver watch, and some other things. Pawned the watch for the money. But the problem was, the home he broke into belonged to C.R. Higgins, who is the president of the largest bank in the area. And the watch had his initials engraved on it. So the pawnbroker sees this, alerts the police. So he's immediately arrested again, you know, basically as soon as he walks into Oregon for doing this. Surprisingly, now, the sheriff and the district attorney came to Carl while he's in that holding cell, and they said, look, we just want to get the stuff back for Mr. Higgins, okay? So if you can tell us where you hid all those stolen goods, where the money is, we'll get it back to him, and we'll give you a slap on the wrist, okay? Unfortunately, this turned out to be a ruse, as Carl learned far too late. He ended up being sentenced to seven years in prison, which apparently was the max. A little fun fact, when Carl was formally booked after revealing where all these goods were, um, he listed his occupation as a thief. So, you know, he was having fun with it. Um, you know, going back to the trick, Carl really, really didn't react well. When he was in that holding cell, in the you know in that small town in Oregon they were holding him there until a train could come by to take him to the Oregon State Penitentiary well his first night there he manages to break the lock on his cell door he then goes around and makes sure no other inmate can flee he you know blocks them into their cells makes sure they're good and locked all that stuff and then he goes into full on hulk smash mode okay like, he starts ripping radiators out of the wall. He's pulling wiring out of the walls. He's smashing pipes, destroying the plumbing. Every loose item he could find, be it, you know, files, money, even, you know, like plates, things like that, were all j tossed into this one big old bunch of crap. And Carl set it on fire. Police managed to get there to, and put out the fire before any real structural damage could occur. None of the other inmates were harmed. Carl, however, was beaten so badly that when the train finally came to pick up those that were heading to the state penitentiary, it had to make a special stop at a hospital for Carl to receive some uh, medical care. So he eventually ends up at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, and he found a brand new enemy to hate, Warden Harry Minto. 
So Minto here was a very, very strong believer in old school discipline. As another situation, you know, prisoners couldn't speak. They could only move through the prison as part of a line of inmates. No individual was allowed to move by themselves. They ate the worst of foods. Um, it was basically just nothing but carbs. And because they weren't getting any vitamins or anything, illness was just rampant throughout the facility. They also didn't provide many work opportunities, which meant a large portion of the prison population was bored and a large portion of the prison population had no money to buy anything to kind of make their days pass a little more quickly. Shockingly, Carl's not a model prisoner. His very first night in Minto's custody, he threw his chamber pot onto a passing guard. This earned him 30 days in solitary. He suffered that straitjacket treatment we discussed earlier, but Minto had his own version of it where the straitjackets were significantly oversized and would come down past most men's knees, including Carl's. And so not only were was there the issue of you couldn't really breathe while you were in the straitjacket, it also severely restricted circulation. And Minto was a fan of having folks stay in that straitjacket for hours at a time. First time Carl got put in it, he could barely walk afterwards. It, it took a while for him to really regain full function of his legs. Minto also had a punishment known as the hummingbird. That sounds kind of sweet, kind of fun, right? Okay, so what the hummingbird is, and Carl learned this, what it was pretty quick too. Uh, an inmate would be stripped naked and forced into a tub of ice water. And while he's sitting there shivering and all that, the tub would be covered, leaving really only the head exposed. And there'd be some holes throughout the covering. And in those holes, they would stick some live wires. So you would get subjected to electrical shocks while in freezing cold ice water. It was such a brutal form of punishment that even Minto knew that he couldn't do it without having a doctor present to make sure the inmate didn't die. So they would basically push you as far as they could without killing you. Um... While he's in solitary, just like any everyone else in solitary, Carl wasn't fed. So he's in there for 30 days without food. So how did he live? Well, I hope you're not eating lunch as you listen to this. Um, he lived off of cockroaches and other little creepy crawlies that would pass through his, his cell. Now, Minto was very effective in being cruel, but he made one huge mistake. Just like in Leavenworth, the worst of the worst had to wear different uniforms. This, the general population wore the classic black and white stripes, but the worst of the worst had to wear red and black stripes, which A, instantly made him look cooler, but B, it told the other prisoners, these are the guys that are the meanest and the baddest. And so the prisoners in the red and black stripes could kind of boss around the prisoners in the black and white stripes. And 
essentially those the general population would serve as the foot soldiers for the meanest. Carl enjoyed this, and he used his influence to just generally cause inmates to be rebellious and sought to make the prison more dangerous than it had ever been before. Since Carl was in solitary and really under constant supervision, he thought the best way he could really spite the warden was to teach the general population prisoners how to escape. And so he did that. Like, he taught little classes on how to do it. I mean, informally, he obviously didn't, you know, book a room at the local Sheraton and charge $500 or any of that. Um, But he would teach them little tricks of the trade, and then he would help create distractions when somebody was going to leave. And again, this was all just to cause mayhem, just to make Warden Minto's life as miserable as possible. Now, interestingly, the very first inmate who Carl trained to escape was successful and in the process actually killed the warden. See, the guy managed to be gone for several weeks and Warden Minto got frustrated at this. So when, you know, the sheriff and the other police officers couldn't find the dude, Minto himself took a handful of his guards and went out and hunted this dude down and found him pretty quickly. And when he found him, he ambushed him. It was on this dirt road. So Minto and his team of guards jump out of these bushes, you know, at twilight and fire at the prisoner. Well, they miss. Somehow they all miss. The prisoner has a gun and as a reaction fires back and manages to hit Minto just square in the forehead, just like in the movies. He died instantly and Carl found this hilarious. It was just the like the greatest joke he'd ever heard. He laughed and celebrated it as long as he could. Now the celebrations didn't last real long before the governor appointed a new warden. John Minto. Harry Minto's own brother. So our new Minto warden has revenge in his heart, right? These inmates were going to pay because they had killed his brother. John Minto decided to make the situation even less fun for the inmates, so he further cut down the number of jobs that were available. Medical care was no longer offered to inmates, and guards were given the authority to shoot any prisoner they thought was escaping. If something didn't suck, essentially Minto made sure that it did. This caused tensions to rise dramatically, which Carl gleefully took advantage of, He set one of the mills on fire when some idiot guard decided that Carl would be a good choice to go collect firewood for the winter. Think about that. They gave Carl an axe. They thought it was a good idea to give Carl an axe. So he doesn't collect firewood. He uses the axe just to smash the heck out of the prison kitchen. This caused his reputation to grow even more, and several inmates in the black and white pajamas started imitating their hero in the red and black pajamas. Eventually, it just got so bad, thanks to Carl and the other prisoners there, 
that guards were too scared to enter kind of the areas that the prisoners had access to. This infuriated the new Minto, and he soon issued the decree that if guards weren't willing to do their job, they would be subjected to the same punishments that inmates were. So they man up, go in there, try to restore order. They, of course, constantly keep an eye on Carl. During a routine inspection, they celebrated finding a hacksaw in Carl's room. They figured they just avoided uh, an escape attempt. But they were a little premature because Carl actually had two hacksaws in his room and they quit searching after they found the first one. Now he gifted this second hacksaw to a pair of inmates who used it to escape their cells and climb down the prison walls. They got away. And since they got away, new warden Minto couldn't punish them, so he decided to punish Carl. His form of punishment was taken to the showers and just blasted with a fire hose until every inch of his body was black and blue. Now, by this point in time, word had gotten up to the Oregon governor. And what he's hearing makes it sound like it's nothing but chaos at this prison. So he personally goes down there to learn what's going on. And the warden's like, oh, it's not so bad. Oh, Carl, yeah, you know, we got him a little wet, but it's nothing inhuman, blah, blah, blah. Governor didn't care. They had a very, very tense conversation, and it ended with uh, Warden Minto tendering his resignation. Carl had now beaten two of the Minto brothers. But, of course, a new warden had to be appointed and would soon arrive. Ex-Army Captain Charles A. Spud Murphy was soon appointed to run the prison. Murphy was considered a very odd choice because he was an advocate of the criminal justice system being a tool to reform criminals rather than just punish them. So, you know, he, he, he didn't like the beatings and torture form of prison administration. And so he arrives and Carl is immediately confused by the spud fella. He had never encountered a man with power who didn't abuse it in some way. Literally, the worst punishment spud would hand out would be a form of solitary confinement where prisoners would just be locked in their cells for whatever period of time it was determined. They would have their food delivered to them, and they would have reading material delivered to them every day to help pass the time. Spud made significant improvements to the prison as far as repairing a lot of portions of the prison that were in disrepair. That alone improved the quality of life in the prison. But Spud also increased the number of jobs available for prisoners. He destroyed a lot of the punishment devices the Minto brothers had come up with. Specifically, there was an area called the bullpen where prisoners would be kind of in a cage at the center of the prison. And there would be a larger cage around it. And the prisoners in there had to spend all daylight hours walking in a circle. And if they ever stopped, that was considered an escape attempt. Um, He tore that down. Spud said none of that. 
he actually spent a lot of time with the most troublesome prisoners, the the red and black gang, I guess you could call them, which included Carl. He he would spend one on one time with them and talk to them and try to figure out what they were so upset about, what he could do to make things better in the prison and what skills they would need to maybe have a life outside of prison. He focused a lot on education and positive reinforcement. With Carl, who is probably the most resistant to Spud's changes, he took a gamble. He said, all right, Carl, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a day pass. You get to go out. You get to do whatever you want all day. But you have to give me your word as a man that you'll be back here before sunset. Carl eagerly accepted with no intention of returning, of course. But when he was out in the free world, after a couple hours, his desire to flee kind of waned. He didn't have to worry about food under Spud. He didn't have to worry about where he was going to sleep. He wasn't being mistreated. And so he actually had a pretty good gig in his mind. And again, remember what Carl's been through. And remember how hard his life has been. So this was one of the high points of his life. So at sunset, Carl comes walking back into the prison. And in general, Carl did calm down. He had, you know, never experienced any form of kindness, much less what Spud was offering. Spud made sure to get Carl a job. And Carl did his job. He didn't go crazy trying to burn or break everything. He did well at his job. Uh, And some have looked at, you know, studied this more significantly than we will, have looked at this and said, you know, he was almost a model prisoner. He was turning into that. So tensions across the board begin to ease. And you didn't have this hostile environment where it was the guards versus the prisoners and there was always some new way to get punished. Spud actually tried to make people happy. He formed a traveling baseball team with inmates. He also formed a traveling marching band. Now, Carl wasn't interested in either, but Spud was interested in Carl. And Carl said, you know, my old man never taught me how to play baseball. I don't know nothing about that. Certainly don't know how to play a musical instrument, so none of this is for me. So Carl was made the flag bearer for the marching band. He would actually lead the marching band onto the field where they were playing uh, and lead them off. So he really took to that. He really liked being given that, even though there's no real authority with it or anything, but just the perception of being the head of this made him feel really good. Now, not every inmate could join the baseball team or the marching band, of course. So, Those who didn't, several of them got together and actually started, on their own, a prison garden to help pass time, which Spud fully supported and helped fund and all that. And then, because things were going so well, Spud started kind of a prison school. He found out a lot of the inmates were poorly educated. Um, You know, many of them were immigrants or the first generation of of people who had immigrated to the United States. They didn't understand English very well. And his little school focused a lot on reading and writing. 
some arithmetic, you know, some history, things like that, but mainly he wanted to increase literacy. And it worked from all, all the objective sources I could find. He managed to significantly increase the literacy rate of uh, his inmates. Carl was not fond of the schooling idea, but gave it a shot because Spud asked him to, and he, he actually got pretty good at reading and writing. Sadly, Carl kind of became the fuel for Spud's greatest critics. See, Carl was regularly given day passes, and he was doing good until he got drunk one day while on a day pass and was seduced by a pretty young thing who took advantage of him, and he didn't return that night. He woke up the next morning um, with nothing left. His shoes were stolen. His All his money was stolen. His hat was stolen. And he panicked. He didn't know what to do. So he stole a bicycle, broke into a house, got a firearm. Police found him. He got into a firefight with police. He ran out of ammo, and they managed to arrest him again. Spud was disappointed on two fronts. Number one, he thought Carl really was becoming a changed man. And number two, his critics, who did not want him to be the warden of this prison, had a whole bunch of crap they could now throw at the governor saying, look at what this idiot's doing. He allowed this prisoner, arguably one of the scariest prisoners in the Oregon penal system, a day pass where he goes out and gets drunk, steals a bicycle, shoots at police. You can't let this go on, governor. You just can't. So Spud was forced to change his ways, and boy, did it not go well. He had to reinstitute some of the disciplinary procedures that the Minto brothers had come up with. Once those were in place, the entire prison went bananas. They felt like Spud had betrayed them, that everything was going to go back to how it was, and it was kind of like living in a riot from this point forward. Now, Carl was given an additional seven years for his little drunken escapade, but he he couldn't do it. He was it was a lot of him being ashamed and a lot of he just had to move on. You know, Carl had to Carl at this point. He was working in the prison kitchen in 1918 and we decided it was time to escape. So he managed to sneak in. Um, a small saw and cut through the floorboards in the kitchen, which kind of dropped them down into the basement of the prison. The basement of the prison was not guarded. And so he stumbled through the darkness until he found a door that led out to freedom. Now, through this point of the story, Carl's been a lot of things, right? He's been a bully. He's been a robber. He's been a sodomizer. He's been an arsonist. But he hasn't really been a murderer, has he? Well, that changes with this escape. So again, for context, it's 1918, and the world's attention is on World War I. Carl being on the run is just kind of a footnote to police and law enforcement officials throughout the country. 
So he just, Carl, you know, is now the mindset that he needed to bring his personal war to humanity as this great war is being fought in Europe. He traveled from Oregon to Philadelphia. And along the way, he committed a series of robberies until he had more than enough money to finally get his seaman certification. Once he got that in Philadelphia, he moved to New York City, where he managed to find a job on a ship headed for Panama. When he got to Panama, he was offered a job as a miner, which allowed him to work in Panama and then in Chile under the employment of the Sinclair Oil Company. Well, I mean, Carl is still Carl. He'll st- he still drinks. He still won't take crap from anyone. He still gets in fights. And while he was in Chile, he got in one too many fights, and he was fired. So in response, Carl set one of the Sinclair Oil Company's oil rigs on fire. He then found another boat, went back to being working to the work of a sailor, um, you know, he traveled to New York, to Scotland, to London, to France, to Germany. Eventually, he was brought back to Connecticut, specifically New Haven, where Carl decided to abandon ship and handle a bit of personal business. You remember how Carl got sent to the military prison at Fort Leavenworth? Well, his punishment had to be approved by the Secretary of War who at that time was a fellow by the name of William Howard Taft. Now, you may recognize that name because Taft would eventually go on to be President of the United States. Well, Carl was still kind of ticked that he signed off on him going to Fort Leavenworth, so Carl hunted down Taft's residence and, as revenge, broke in and managed to steal several thousand dollars of jewelry and currency and other items, and also found a 45 Colt automatic pistol. Carl would use the money he found to buy a ship of his own. And it was a shipping vessel, but it wasn't really used to ship. See, what? Carl would do is go into town and say, hey, I've got a ship full of cargo. I'm short on crew. Who wants in? Sailors would sign up, get on board. He'd tell them the cargo was restricted. They couldn't see it, you know, just to let it alone. After they went out to, you know, pulled out from dock, went out into the ocean, went out to sea. And over the course of the next few days, he would kill each sailor one by one. Slowly. Oftentimes sodomizing him first, sometimes sodomizing him after the murder, and um, taking all their personal belongings. And he'd kick the bodies into the ocean. Then he'd go to a new port, pull the same gig again. Now, this only lasted for so long until a storm snuck up on him and his ship was sank off the coast of New Jersey. And just to clarify, yes, Carl did use President Taft's pistol to kill all these men. So, without a boat, Carl kind of returned to his wandering, sodomizing, robbing ways while traveling as a seaman on other boats. 
and his very first victim after doing this told Carl's superiors who immediately filed fired Carl. And this taught Carl that he couldn't allow his involuntary sexual partners to live. So the next boy he got a hold of ended up with a bullet hole in his head. And in fact, in his memoirs, he spends a lot of time describing how bloody the scene was. Carl then decided to engage in some hunting. See, at this time he was on the I believe it was the west coast of Africa. And he hired six men to take him hunting. Specifically, they were going to hunt crocodiles. Now, the men were studying the waters and the creatures closely. And they came across kind of a a nest or a pod. I don't know what the proper term for a group of crocodiles is. I'm sure some of y'all are yelling at me saying what it is, but but I don't know. Um. While they kind of were positioning the boat and getting things just right to begin what they had to do, because obviously once they start this fight, they have to finish it because the Crocs ain't going to be real happy about it. Carl was standing behind them watching and then decided, you know, it'd be more fun. And then he quickly shot all six men in the back. Now, most of them died immediately. A few of them didn't. Regardless, he kicked all of them into the waters. Basically, his crocodile chum. Eventually, his travels bring Carl back to the United States, to Massachusetts specifically. And he continued his murderous ways there. His first victim was a young boy who he hired to help with a job for 50 cents while he was in Salem. The boy's body was eventually found floating in a local but kind of isolated swimming hole. When police found the boy's body, they also found a second boy who had been missing, also dead, also floating. A few days later, some hunters found another child's body not far from there in the woods. It had been beaten and bloodied. The murder weapon was one of the rocks laying next to the to the child's body. So Salem kind of lost its mind and a community search party slash mob about 400 people began searching for the monster behind these crimes. Now, it being a mob, there wasn't a whole lot of due process. And it was, I mean, I hate to say this in Salem, Massachusetts, but it was kind of a witch hunt. Um, They would just kind of randomly pick dudes out and blame them for the murders. Fortunately, they didn't go total cray cray and like you know lynch them immediately but they would beat them and arrest them i think four were arrested and all four were eventually released because they had alibis of one sort or another now carl knew how to read a room and he figured he couldn't stay alone so uh he booked his way up to new york while all these arrests were being made by the citizenry and From there, Carl just bounced around, causing trouble wherever he went. He got down to Louisiana, actually picked a fight he couldn't win and ended up in the hospital for a spell. Uh, He decided to check out a little bit early and on the way took two briefcases full of prescription drugs with him. He managed to sell them and raised enough money to return to New York 
hire a gang and they work together to steal the New York police commissioner's private boat. Yeah. He then decided he needed to sell it so he wouldn't have the evidence on hand when he was caught. He met a fella in Rhode Island who wanted to buy it. When the guy showed up to buy it, instead of bringing money, he brought a gun. This royally ticked off Carl, so he killed the man. You know, because that's what Carl does. And eventually he was caught with the boat and sent to New York for punishment. This arrest was very problematic for Carl. He received a five-year sentence in New York, but he still had a lot of time left to serve in Oregon. And when they found out that New York had Carl, they placed a hold on him so that when his time in New York was done, he would be sent back to Oregon to finish out the remainder of those 14 years he was sentenced to. Carl was sent to the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemore, New York. This was a facility that was kind of the end of the road in the New York criminal justice system. The criminally insane who couldn't be treated were sent here. The worst of the worst who had basically caused problems at every other prison were, was sent here. Carl, you know, was sent there just based off his, his reputation. What's fun is uh, I found one source that said this prison was reserved for the criminally insane and those prisoners considered incorrigible. That just seems like such a mild way of putting it. So Carl's back to living under a lot of the same rules that he had dealt with at a lot of the other prisons he had been in. But this facility may have been the worst Carl had uh, enjoyed. The, the cells were very cramped. There was, you know, it was very overpopulated. The bars on the windows and the bars on the doors were made of super incredibly thick steel and were placed so closely together that you couldn't really see out of them. You could only kind of get a glimmer of what was going on out there by kind of moving your head back and forth. And it just so happens that this prison is located in like apparently one of the prettiest parts of New York State. And so it was kind of considered like an extra bit of an FU to prisoners that they were surrounded by this beautiful nature, but they couldn't really see it. The prison budget uh, only allowed each prisoner to receive six cents worth of food per meal. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is like the 1920s. So six cents of food back then is, you know, it was probably a lot more than what we're thinking. No. No, not really. In today's world, six cents would only be about 90 cents. So you get to eat 90 cents of food per meal. Um, it also had no luxuries. Indoor plumbing was considered a luxury. So you can only imagine how horrible the filth was in this place. Um, in fact, this prison was in such bad shape, one of the state's own prison inspectors in a formal report to the state legislature described it as a living graveyard. Carl was true to himself and to his nature. While he was there, he tried to brain a prisoner he didn't particularly care for. He set a few fires. He even learned how to make a bomb, but sadly the uh, guards found it before it went off. Much to Carl's dismay, I'm sure. 
He, of course, tried to escape, and his first escape attempt would be truly life-changing. He had managed to scale the main wall, which was 30 feet tall. But he was caught when he got to the top. They realized he was running, so they gave chase, and as he's trying to race to freedom, he slipped, and he fell backwards 30 feet, landing on a concrete floor. Carl broke both of his ankles. He broke bones throughout both of his legs. He fractured several portions of his spine, and he ruptured one of his testicles. He received no medical treatment for these injuries. His bones weren't even set. He had to do it himself as best he could in his situation. It took him over eight months before he could even stand. His ruptured testicle remained in his body for over a year before he was finally allowed to see a surgeon to have it removed. He never fully recovered, as you can imagine. His mobility was shot. He had to kind of limp around with a cane. He lost a lot of his natural strength due to being bedridden or floor-ridden for over eight months. But as I keep saying... Carl's going to Carl. He's not going to let circumstances dictate what he wants to do. Five days after his testicular surgery, he was caught sodomizing an inmate. When the guards asked him what he was doing, he said he just had to make sure that his good still worked. The fall also kind of metaphorically took, made Carl fall into a deeper place. You know, he had spent a lot of his time dreaming about murder and rape and robbery and arson, but now he kind of went like full-on Joker from Batman. And he started making plans to truly see the world burn. He actually put together a very detailed plan for bombing a train going through a particular tunnel in Pennsylvania. His plan was he'd set the explosives when the train went through the tunnel. The explosives would go off. Next to the explosives would be a type of poison gas. So if the crash didn't kill the prisoners, these toxic fumes would. And Carl also had the idea that he would don a face mask or a gas mask and other facial and bodily protections and walk into the horror scene with some firearms, kill anybody who was trying to escape, and then loot all the goods he could find laying in the mess before authorities could respond. His goal in doing this was he hoped that he could put together another gang like he did to steal the police commissioner's boat. Only this time he was going to use his gang to steal a English battleship that was docked at a U.S. port and take the ship and basically shoot at another American ship and try to start a war between the U.K. and the U.S. Other than that crippling fall, Carl's time in New York kind of went pretty quickly for him. When he was released, he was expected to be sent to Oregon, but 
Oregon was actually in a financial crisis at this time and couldn't afford to pay to have Carl shipped across the country. So they released the hold, and he was set free to rape and murder again. But, as usual, Carl didn't last long in the free world. This time he ended up in prison in Washington, D.C. This prison experience was life-changing in a different way. He made another friend. This time the friend was a guard, Henry Lesser. Now, he was a man you know, who enjoyed having the authority he was given to him, but he didn't abuse it. He was like Spud, Warden Spud. For whatever reason, Henry was very interested in Carl, and they kind of clicked. Um, Carl, since taking those educational classes that Spud had offered, spent a lot of time reading. And in particular, he would read a lot of philosophy, so he was particularly well-educated about that, and that happened to be one of Henry's areas of interest, too. So they would chit-chat about all that. Now, they didn't get along well at first. Henry tried to befriend Carl, and Carl knew that there was some reason for this, and he wasn't going to fall for it. So when Henry would make chit-chat, he'd oh, what would you do in the outside world? Carl's response is he would reform people. He eventually explained to Henry that that meant he murdered people because that was the only way to reform a human in his mind. Now, the warden of this prison was a bad dude. Perhaps, I think it's fair to say he was the most corrupt of all the wardens that Carl had dealt with. Uh, as an example of his corruption, you know, like all the prisons during this time, it was overcrowded. And there was a man in the population who was slowly dying from an infection. Warden wouldn't let him get medical care because he said the hospital was too full of people. And in doing a triage assessment, they didn't think the man would survive, so he was just going to let him rot. Wouldn't even give him painkillers. Meanwhile, a wealthy bootlegger who had been arrested didn't really want to be in the general population, so he had bribed the warden to give him not one, but two beds in the prison hospital room. And that's where he would do his sentence. Well, this poorer man laid in general population and slowly died. So Carl quickly managed to live up to his reputation and was stuck in the special solitary wing of this prison. Carl was the first prisoner to be held in the solitary wing that was not facing execution. Basically, this was in the death row part of the jail. These special solitary rooms were among the worst Carl had ever been in. The bed was a pile of dirty straw. There was no windows. There was no lights. The toilet was a open hole in the center of the floor that dropped straight into the sewage line. Again, you can only imagine how horrible those conditions would be to live in. And then, randomly at nights, just for fun, the guards would come in, grab Carl, and uh, play that game where he'd be tied to, this time, a nine-foot pool 
for hours at a time with his feet barely touching the ground. And they'd beat on him, whip him, do whatever they wanted to him. Then they'd return him before the morning shift got there. Now, Henry caught wind of what was going on and was shocked. He worked pretty hard to stop this from happening, but he was ignored, brushed aside, probably called some pretty hurtful names, too. Um, the only thing Carl, or the only thing Henry could do to help Carl was to sneak him some money. He would throw a dollar bill at him periodically. He thought, you know, at least this way Carl could enjoy some small comforts from the prison canteen. Carl, you know, knew there was a string attached. And so he refused the money at first. But Henry was insistent. And eventually Carl accepted it. And even though he said that, Henry, you're going to turn against me at one point. You can't be a prison guard and be a good guy. It's just not possible. Slowly but surely, Henry's kindness wore Carl down. One day during his rounds, Carl shouted at Henry, telling him to come to his cell. Now, despite having been through everything he had been, Carl was still a mean-looking dude. He apparently had huge hands. And they're wrapped around the bars, and he's glaring at at Henry as he comes up. And when Henry gets close, Carl kind of whispers to him, saying, Thank you. No guards ever treated me with such kindness. And apparently Carl even had tears in his eyes during this conversation. Now, as their friendship grew, Henry convinced Carl that he needed to write his story. People needed to know what he had been through throughout his life, throughout his time in prison, all of that. Carl, of course, immediately said, that's stupid. Nobody wants to hear about me. But then kind of got interested in the idea. Henry's pitched it as, this is the only way you can tell the world your side of your story. And what his motives really were for committing the acts that he did. And his thoughts on, you know, the criminal justice system in general, humanity in general, and all that. And Carl, Carl kind of dug it. so. He asked for a pencil and some paper. Well, that's against the rules, of course, because we have to have rules against everything. But Henry managed to sneak in some writing supplies. And Carl completed his autobiography while in prison and gave it to Henry, asked him to please see that it was published. And it was eventually. It took a spell, but it was published, and you can buy it today. And in it, he does exactly what he set out to do. He explains a lot of his crimes. He does not attempt to excuse himself or defend himself. He merely explains his thought process in what went through committing the crimes. So apparently it's very a very interesting read from a psychological perspective. And he also has a lot of insights on the criminal justice system at that time. And, you know, opine that the whole system was rigged to benefit those who were, you know, providing the prisons, who were making the rules. He's, you know, it's kind of supply creating demand, uh, which arguably 
even today is is still a legitimate debate. Now, when Carl's time in D.C. ended, multiple states wanted a peace settle. He was wanted in connection with some murders in Connecticut, Philadelphia, and he had also been facing federal charges related to some robbery. So, naturally, of course, the feds get him first. During his trial for this robbery, Carl refused to accept a lawyer. The court offered multiple times to appoint him one. He said he didn't want one. He made no effort to defend himself. In fact, he made the following two statements as part of his defense during his trial. The first one was, You people got me charged with housebreaking and larceny. I'm guilty. I broke in and I stole. What I didn't steal, I smashed. If the owner had come in, I would have knocked his brains out. And his second statement, which I think was part of his closing arguments, while you were trying me here, I was trying all of you too. I found you guilty. Some of you have executed. If I like, I'll execute more of you. I hate the whole human race. Don't think I'm playing crazy. I'm not. I know right from wrong. No delusions. I don't hear anything you don't hear. My conscience doesn't bother me. I have no conscience. I believe the whole human race should be exterminated. And I'll do my best to do it every chance I get. Guess how long the jury deliberated on this one? Reportedly less than a minute. He was sentenced to 25 years back in Fort Leavenworth. Now, while there, Carl largely kept to himself, though he continued to communicate with Henry sporadically through letters. It it seems like this was the only man that Carl held a positive opinion of through the rest of his life. Now, obviously, we're in the 1920s. If you remember, the 1920s are a time when the economy kind of goes to crap. People have turned to a life of crime, and Leavenworth was seriously, seriously, seriously overcrowded. There were virtually no jobs to be had. Um, In fact, some of the wealthier inmates began hiring the poorer inmates to do work for them. Somehow, someway, Carl got a job, one of the few available, in the laundry room. And he tried to make a side hustle of all things in laundering extra handkerchiefs. Which, of course, was against prison rules, but what did he care? Well, when he was caught by the foreman of the laundry shop, for lack of a better term for the dude, he was put back at grade three, like he was last time he was there. He lost every privilege but his job. For some reason, they kept him working there, even though that's the entire reason he got in trouble. And he was put back into those basement cells that everybody loves so much. Now, Carl asked, look, if you're going to do all this to me, can you transfer me to a new job? Because standing all day ain't working for me. It's killing my legs. It's killing my back. You know, I was crippled when I was in New York. But that request was denied. So the next time Carl went to work, some repairmen had happened to be through there, and they forgot 
and left some spare parts to one of the machines lying around. And one of the spare parts was a heavy steel pipe. So guess what Carl did? Carl saw the pipe. Carl grabbed the pipe. Carl began stalking the hallways of the laundry room. The first person he runs into, the foreman of the laundry room, the very man who had put Carl in his now horrible situation. Carl revved his arm back and just smashed the dude in the head. The foreman fell down and tried to defend himself, but Carl would not stop. He just continued to beat him with the pipe until the body stopped moving. Carl was then kind of in a bloodlust and turned on the other prisoners that were working there and tried to get them. Fortunately for them, because of Carl's injuries, he couldn't move very fast, so they were able to get out of there and kind of bar Carl in the laundry room. He only got to take a swing at one guy, and he hit him in the arm and broke his arm, but that was the only other damage he did. When the guards got there, they basically told Carl, look, we got you. You better stand down. Carl cursed, threw down his pipe, and said, fine. They opened the doors, all had their guns trained on them, and Carl just limped out of there and went straight to his cell. He was charged with first-degree murder for killing the foreman in December of 1929. Carl refused to fight this charge. He was sentenced to death and actually was excited for the first time in his life that he could remember. He was ready to embrace death. So committed to dying was Carl that he caught wind of a rumor that his execution would be postponed. So he wrote a letter to the president and said, please make sure I am executed. When he didn't receive a response, which, in fairness, the president probably has a few better things to do than to respond to an inmate like Carl. Uh, Carl tried to poison himself with rotten food and sliced open a, a, a huge cut in his leg trying to bleed out. The guards happened to walk by shortly after he did this, saw what happened, took him to the hospital. They stitch up the wound and had his stomach pumped, frankly, just in time to save his life. Carl was finally taken to the gallows on September 5th, 1930. When he was asked if he had any regrets, the only disappointment he shared is that he would not be able to finish reading an article in a magazine that he was enjoying. When asked for his last words, here's what Carl had to say. Yes, hurry it up, you Hoosier bastards. I could hung a dozen men while you're fooling around. With that, the door beneath his feet swung open, and Carl was declared dead at 6.18 a.m. He's buried at Leavenworth Penitentiary Cemetery, with the grave marker reading only 31614, his prison number. He died at the age of 39. Well, we ain't left with a whole bunch to analyze here, are we? Carl committed his crimes and just wore him like a badge of honor. No remorse, no second thoughts, no defense. He did what he did. Now, officially, there's only five murders that can truly be linked to Carl. 
but there's a hundred plus where he's a suspect in the death. And that's just in the United States. He claims to have murdered in other countries. I couldn't find an estimate of how many would be from abroad. But he says it in his memoirs that he just killed and killed and killed. Now, what seems most interesting to me is this dude was a mean killer, but he was also really insightful. He wasn't some uncontrolled chaos unleashed upon the world. Carl seemed focused on the idea that cruelty breeds cruelty. Of course, he was raised in a very cruel environment. All the authority figures he had in his life were very cruel. And that caused Carl to adopt the same philosophy as part of his effort to survive. And it's interesting to me as a legal professional how short Carl's sentences were um, and the struggles jurisdictions had to transfer prisoners at the time. I mean, all these murders, all these robberies, all these rapes, all these crimes he's committed. He earns a lot of jail time, but in reality, he also spent a lot of time outside of jail in order to commit these crimes. It's also shocking to me to hear about how vicious the punishments were in prisons back in the day. I mean, suffering electrical shocks while you're being held down in ice water, pulling a prisoner up a nine or 12 foot pole just to beat on him, you know, laying a kid down, putting salt water on his back and beating him there just so it would hurt worse. That's, that's some nasty stuff, you know? Sadists must have loved working in the prisons in the early 1900s. And just in case this goes through your mind, a fun bit of legal trivia, the Eighth Amendment we have here in the United States that protects against cruel, unusual punishment, you know, the Bill of Rights, those first ten amendments, really all the amendments to the Constitution only apply to the federal government unless they've been incorporated somehow into the states. So if a state had a provision preventing cruel and unusual punishment, then none of this stuff should have been going on. But the Eighth Amendment was not incorporated against all the states until around 1962. So under federal law, none of this, or under state law, none of this would have been improper unless, again, there was a specific provision in that state forbidding it. What a different world, huh? Carl's writings were kept by Henry, all of them, and they were properly preserved. The, his memoir, Henry, couldn't get published until 1970, you know, 50 years roughly after Carl wrote it. Um, but he did finally get it published. Like I said, you can still find it and order it if you want to read it. Um, all those original writings were donated and are still preserved by the San Diego State University Library. Now, Carl's kind of famous for two quotes that you may have heard. One of them is, uh, I wish I had, I wish you all had one neck and my hands were around it. And the other one is, today I am dirty, but tomorrow I'll just be dirt. So if you ever wonder who said those, it's our buddy here, Carl. Now, despite him being kind of a character, there's really not a lot of movies or documentaries about Carl. In 1996, a movie by the name of Killer, A Journal of Murder, based on Carl's book of the same name, was released, and it starred 
James Woods is Carl. Now, I haven't seen it, but from the reviews I read, suggests it was more based on Carl's life than anything close to a faithful retelling. There's also apparently a documentary out there called Carl Panzerum, The Spirit of Hatred and Vengeance, which was released in 2012. You can check that out if you can find it. Um, personally, you know, in case you can't tell, I find this dude fascinating. I really, truly do, because this is an example of someone who remained true to himself regardless of his situations or the consequences of doing so. Obviously in a very, very negative way. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to see because arguably he lived his life with such purity. Not in a good way. I'm not singing his praises here. I'm not saying he was pure. Please don't get confused. But he had a life philosophy. And he stuck to it. And he didn't let the world shape him in any way whatsoever in his mind. I mean, I think we could definitely argue that his upbringing had a massive effect on him. And it's sad to see, it's sad to see that he, was, he went down this path because he strikes me as a sort that's pretty intelligent. Not a genius by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly more intelligent than the average killer we read about, I believe. He's just, again, I just find him fascinating. He's a very, very interesting character, and that's why I really wanted to do this episode on him. But that's all I've got on him. I think that's enough. Um, let's jump into the palate cleanser. This one is exceptionally cheesy, so you're either going to love it or hate it based on your sense of humor. Why do celebrities always look so cool? Why do celebrities always look so cool? That's because they have so many fans. It was like it was like licking a wheel of cheddar, wasn't it? It was that cheesy. All right, well, another episode down. Another one bites the dust. Hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed having y'all come around, of course. We'll try to do it again next week. In the meantime, keep doing those little things you all do to make the world a happier place. You can help make sure there's not another Carl if we can all be nice to each other, you know. Know that all of us here at KMH love you and hope you keep kicking butt in life like we know that you are. We'll see you next time. Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.